From the studios of WHUPLP in Hillsborough, North Carolina, this is Dirty White Belt Radio. Innovative, often duplicated When enough people get on the trend I elevate it, make it way harder For them to follow what I take It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged In your trachea Goodness gracious bruh, I can never make this up So just take your stuff Rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk, you painted skunks You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space So the wait is up Fight, fight It's not every day you get to train with the reigning, defending, black belt, double gold world champion. It's even rarer when that person is not just defending the 2016 weight class and absolute title, but also the 2015 one and is working on an unbeaten streak of two plus years. But if you get that opportunity, you have to take it. And if that opportunity doesn't come to you, you have to make it happen. And so we were really excited to put on our first ever Dirty White Belt Radio sponsored seminar. We brought in Dominica Oblanite, who taught a Friday night women's only seminar at Elevate MMA and a Saturday co-ed seminar at Triangle Jiu-Jitsu right here in Durham. And it was a pleasure to train with and talk to the best in the world right now. And whenever we get a person of that caliber in town, of course, we want to talk to him on the podcast. So we took about an hour to talk to Dominica about her own journey in jujitsu, about her life experiences that have brought her to this point, about her philosophy on teaching, on training, and a really wide ranging conversation about her interests, including Japanese animation, including web comics, and more that I think you're really going to enjoy as much as I enjoyed conducting it. I want to take a moment and thank everybody who came out to train and support the seminar. Everybody on Friday night and Saturday was really excited, very enthusiastic, and it was excellent not just to watch the techniques be absorbed, but also watch the sense of community that we had on the mat from uh, everybody who trains jujitsu down here. So that was a lot of fun for me. And if you were there, whether you were training or teaching, I really want to say thanks for coming out. We'll talk to Dominica at length during our featured interview, but I want to tell you about some upcoming news items first. Last year, we took a look at hundreds of matches from U.S. Grappling and put together an information graphic that showed you the most commonly used submissions at U.S. Grappling tournaments in 2015. Well, it's about that time again, but we didn't just look at the 2016 tournaments. We decided to analyze all 4,000 plus matches that have ever taken place at U.S. Grappling's submission-only tournaments. Now, at U.S. Grappling, these tournaments are true submission-only. It's not the kind of submission-only where, okay, we're going to go for 10 minutes, we're going to go for 20 minutes, and if it ends, then we go to points, or if it ends, it ends in a draw. These are two people step on the mat, one person eventually gives up, no matter from what, and then we have a winner. And when you have a winner, you have a really pure set of data, which maybe only excites me as a data nerd, but boy, does it. And so in the next week or so, we're going to be putting together a new version of those information graphics that are going to show you in visual form all the most popular submissions that are used at U.S. Grappling. This will be really fascinating, I think, just from an informational perspective, but it also helps inform how we train. And I think there are some things that will surprise you, some things that do not surprise you. And we're going to try to have a segment on the show in the next couple of weeks so that we can discuss that data. And we'll go over the 2016 results, the 2015 results, and the more than 4,000 matches that went into this analysis. U.S. Grappling is our favorite tournament organization for a lot of reasons. Run by grapplers for grapplers, U.S. Grappling consistently provides the best tournament experience for competitors. 
whether it's a points tournament or submission only, and U.S. Grappling runs true no-time-limit submission-only events, it's the best place to compete and to watch your friends compete. Check out upcoming events and register online at usgrappling.com. Speaking of U.S. Grappling submission only, there is a submission only tournament right on the horizon, and that is March 4th in Charlotte. I'll be there refing at it, I'll be there competing, and you should be there competing as well. If you've never done one of these submission only tournaments, it's the most pure form there is. You know, there are no points, there are no advantages, there are no time limits, just you and another person on the mat, and one of you is going to give up. It's a really powerful experience. If you've done it, you know how fun it is. If you haven't done it, you really owe it to yourself to get out there and try this at least once. So check that out. U.S. Grappling Submission Only Charlotte, March 4th. You can register online at usgrappling.com. The other thing I want to mention before we get into the interviews is that Dave Camarillo is coming back. This has been rumored for some time, and I want to thank Jason Colbreth, Black Belt at Forged Fitness, Black Belt World Champion, by the way, in this past year, for bringing Dave back. We've all wanted to get Dave back in town for some seminars. He's one of the most accomplished grapplers and most well-rounded grapplers in the world, uh, one of the best martial arts instructors I've ever trained with, and teaches one of the best seminars ever. If you have the opportunity on March 5th, the day after U.S. Grappling Sub Only, Dave will be teaching a seminar at Gracie Raleigh. He's going to be in town for a few days after that, so I'm not sure if there's going to be another seminar. I'm not sure if he's going to be available for privates. Check out our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Radio, and we'll get more information to you as we get it. But for now, mark off next weekend, March 4th for Submission Only Charlotte for U.S. Grappling, and March 5th for the Dave Camarillo Seminar at Gracie Raleigh. Both of those things will be excellent. To finish off our news segment, one thing that I want to get on your radar screen for next month, on April 15th, a local CrossFit gym, CrossFit Embark in Apex, is having a workout that's going to benefit a good cause. Uh, I was made aware of this by Ryan Homer, who is a purple belt who trains at DeFirma uh, Training Center. And I want to, Ryan's an active competitor, sort of a fixture of the local community. And he mentioned to me that his sister, Sarah, was organizing something that I might be interested in supporting, not just from a charitable perspective, but also from a workout perspective. So when I approached Sarah about talking about this on the podcast, she said, sure. And she offered me a couple of free CrossFit classes. Now, I'd done circuit training before, but I'd never done a proper CrossFit workout before. So I decided, hey, why don't I go and try this CrossFit thing before I talk to Sarah? So what you're about to hear is me conducting an interview after my first ever CrossFit workout. I'm very proud that I don't sound as out of breath as I probably was. Without further ado, here's Sarah Homer explaining how you can support a good cause while getting a great workout at the same time. So Sarah, thanks a lot for uh, crushing my spirit with today's workout. Yeah, anytime. You're always welcome at CrossFit Embark. <laughs> so how long have you been uh, training CrossFit and how long have you been here at CrossFit Embark? Yeah, so I've been training CrossFit for probably about four years now. Um, and then I've been at CrossFit Embark for just a little over a month. I came from a previous gym before. And you're an active competitor, is that right? I like to think so. <laughs> I do the best I can. Um, we compete pretty frequently. We have a competition team at Embark that is hoping to qualify for the CrossFit Regionals in June. And what do you get out of competition that you wouldn't get just out of training and doing workouts of the day? What, what does competition do for you? Yeah, so it's different from person to person. Personally, for myself, um, it drives me to be better and to keep training. Um, and I just I love the feeling of pushing myself to the limit. And your brother, Ryan, is also a competitor, although in purple belt jiu-jitsu. So, and you said he's been doing CrossFit to try to augment his jiu-jitsu. Is, is that right? Yes, he has. He's incorporated two days a week um, at a gym local to him. And he has noticed huge improvements in his strength, his endurance, um, and then his flexibility as well. Because you guys have to be super flexible, super flexy. 
in order to do jujitsu. Yeah, we do our best. Just not to break. It helps. Uh, so who can who can kick whose butt? You or Ryan? And don't worry, he doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> um. <laughs> so growing up, I, I always had the upper hand. I was the big sister. Um. However, now he has um definitely shown me that he can kick my butt for sure. But when it comes to working out, I got him. But he can check me out. But and over the course of a lifetime, though, you're still probably ahead, right? So he's so he's got some catching up to do. Oh, totally. Oh, totally. I'm the older sibling. I always have the upper hand. <laughs> so you all are doing uh, a special uh, workout of the day, a 5K gone bad uh, for a good cause. And can you tell me a little bit about that and uh, how that came to be? Yeah, of course. So on April the 15th, we're holding 5K gone bad. Um, you'll run half of a 5K, so 1.5 miles. And then we'll have a little twist to it, a little surprise workout in between. And then you'll finish out the 5K. Um, it's going to benefit the Special Olympics. So that's... Uh, a organization that's really near and dear to CrossFit Embark's uh, heart. Every Thursday, we host Lindley College, which is a school for people with special needs. Um, and they come in, and we put them through a workout and let them use the equipment and stuff like that. Um, so it's just something that's really dear to CrossFit Embark's heart. So obviously, you're promoting that here in your gym. But like, if someone's a podcast listener, maybe they like to work out, maybe they like CrossFit, or maybe they just want to support a good cause, how can they get involved and support what you're trying to do? Yeah, absolutely. So we have an Eventbrite page set up for that if you want to register to run or if you just want to donate, um, you can do that as well. If you look it up on Facebook, you can look up either the CrossFit Embark Facebook page or CrossFit Embark 5K Gone Bad and all the information is there. So we'll post all that information on our Facebook page and at DirtyWhiteBelt.com on the blog there if you're interested in supporting 5K Gone Bad to benefit the Special Olympics. Thanks to Ryan Homer for hipping us to that. We'll also put this on our calendar at DirtyWhiteBelt.com, which has all these upcoming events. Our featured interview today is brought to you by Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Company, featuring the best geese, rash guards, shirts, fight shorts, and all other products for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Toro BJJ is the best company to support for your grappling needs. Additionally, Toro BJJ does a lot to support our local community as well, and it's important to support those who support us. You can check them out online at torobjj.com or in person at 124 Ladder Road in the location of Cage Side Fight Company and Triangle Jiu-Jitsu. Thanks to Toro BJJ for supporting this featured interview. Now it's time for our featured interview. So Dominica Oblinite is only 21 years old, and yet she has beaten such grappling titans as Mackenzie Dern, as Monique Elias. Um, she's competed several times against our own Caitlin Huggins, who is uh, one of, one of the, the black belts that is most active competing in this area, has been on the show many times, has uh, taught and trained and competed at the absolute highest level. And so I knew all of this, and I had been assured that in addition to being an exceptional competitor, Dominica was a lot of fun to be around and really interesting to talk to. And that's what I found as well. From the perspective of getting better at jiu-jitsu, it's always helpful to go straight to the source of the people that are the best in the world and ask how they got that way, about how, you know, what the benchmarks of their success are, what their training methods are, and we're going to talk about all of that with Dominica. So, of course, we talked to Dominica about her training method. We also talked to her about who her toughest matches are. We talked about what her goals for the future are and what it's like to be a young person in jiu-jitsu who is a 21-year-old, full-time college student that just happens to be the best in the world. We talked to her before her Friday night women-only seminar at Elevate MMA. So I'm going to get right into our interview with Dominica, and it starts out with me attempting to pronounce her name. 
I want to try to pronounce your name. Yeah. And I want you to 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 acknowledge that I haven't asked you how to pronounce your name. Sure. All right. So Dominica Obelanicha. Dominica Obelanite. Obelanite. Yeah. Obelanite. Ah, okay. Oh, I was go. close. You I was, were close. How many? On a scale of one to one hundred, how close did I get compared to the average person? Um, compared to the average person, I think you got like a ninety-eight on oh. that scale because most people just go. Uh, <laughs> or as the announcer at Worlds like to say, Dominica. That's it. <laughs> they don't even go for the last name. Okay, that's an incre- first of all, that's an incredible impersonation of the Worlds oh, thank announcer. You. I think that was great. It's almost a compliment because you could go by your first name like Prince. Yeah, right? you could like, like Prince or Seal. Or Seal, or right? Seal. Yeah. yeah, indeed. So, totally. Well, welcome to the podcast. I've wanted to have you on forever. I'm very excited. I'm really to tr- happy to be here. So uh, this is not your first time in North Carolina. You came no. for the, the Charlotte Open where mm-hmm. you competed. And what are your impressions of North Carolina so far? Um. So my first impression of North Carolina was, wow, it's a lot like New Jersey. A lot of strip malls, a lot of uh, little restaurants, a lot of suburbia. And I wasn't really feeling it that much. I didn't get this outdoorsy vibe that I'm getting here now. And I would say that right now I'm like floored. I'm floored with the hominess, the coziness that I feel around here. I'm floored with the weather, which is so perfect compared to New York. And I don't know, we'd really like it here. I'd love to come back. Terrific. Well, we would love to have you. We have a bunch of people very excited to train with you. As we're recording this, we're a couple hours away from a women-only class at Elevate MMA yes. and a co-ed seminar tomorrow. Yeah. Are there differences? What What would you say the differences are between teaching a women-only class and a, and, a, and a co-ed seminar, if there are differences? I don't think there are differences in my case, personally. Um, there might be ways that people go about it where they cater to different types of moves depending on their audience i tend to teach everyone the same thing i don't really think that jujitsu works better for a woman or a man in certain situations i think everyone is capable of learning the same moves it just depends on what applies best to your game so i think the only thing that i do do that's a little bit extra is i tend to ask uh read a little discussion after either the class or the seminar where I talk to people about maybe competing or just continuing their jiu-jitsu journey, any problems they're having, anything I can maybe help them with. And what I do notice is I do get a lot more uh, responses from the female side of the audience uh, trying to ask me what it's like to be a woman. Did I have many female training partners when I was coming up? What do I see for the future in women's jiu-jitsu? Things like that. So I think that's like the biggest difference. Cool. And is that also why it's valuable to have women-only seminars? Like, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, as a guy, obviously, I don't get to go to these. But, like, <laughs> yeah. what, what would you say the value is in creating sort of a women-only space where they can ask questions and such? So I think the biggest thing about having these discussions is the motivation factor. I think a lot of women get discouraged in jiu-jitsu. They get discouraged because they get smashed by bigger training partners, perhaps... They don't have the best instruction. They don't have the best training partners that are, like, willing to help them out and willing to help them progress in a way that's helpful to their uh, situation. But I do try to encourage them and tell them that even though I've had a couple of rough situations in my jiu-jitsu journey, that I was still able to overcome these situations and continue on, and now I'm much happier where I am. And though I had to go through, like, these difficult transition periods, they were all worth it in the end. And I think I learned this um, from my longtime uh, mentor, Emily Kwok. I trained with her when I was like 12. I, I was taking privates with her, and she was the one that encouraged me to eventually go to Marcelo's and train there for six years. But um, she 
does her own thing of female camp circuits where she does week-long camps that are super intensive and teaching mostly women, having women's open mats, and really opening up uh, the floor for discussion about how people, how women get started in jiu-jitsu, what motivates them to start training, what motivates them to continue training, and how they can make the space more comfortable for newcomers to come in and feel like they belong. They don't feel intimidated, they don't feel like this is something they can't be a part of, and just, you know, encourage the spread of women's jiu-jitsu. Yeah, those groundswell grappling concepts camps yeah. are terrific. And, you know, they have, you mentioned Emily Kwok, you know, super well-respected black belt, Val Worthington yeah. is involved with that. Our friend Sam Fallhaber, who yes. we were talking about off-air. So just yes. a ton of really great people that do wonderful things for jiu-jitsu. And so I'm wondering, you made it, you mentioned some rough situations that you had been in, in jiu-jitsu that you'd gotten through. You made an interesting Instagram post just, a, I think, a day or so ago about competition nerves mm-hmm. and about how it's taken. You've been competing at the highest levels yeah. for years. And you sort of made a rah-rah post about, like, hey, you know, it, it, here's how you can get through that sort of anxiety. Would you, would you talk a little bit about your own process there and where you're at now? Sure. Um, so I actually wrote an article about this. I believe it was in Jiu-Jitsu, and I don't know how long ago it was. I think it might have been two, three years ago. And um, my stance hasn't really changed since I wrote that article. Basically, when I first started competing... The amount of nerves I was getting was tremendous. Like, um, I don't usually throw up, but before every single competition, I was, like, circling garbage cans just in case. And um, I don't think that ever really stopped. Um, I still definitely get supremely extra super-duper nervous before every match. Um, I would say that it's gotten better because when I was first starting to compete, especially in the Nagas and Grapplers course in the smaller tournaments, I'd get nervous like a month before. Mm-hmm. I'd think about it and I'd already have to go to the bathroom. But now I think I've sort of calmed down. I don't really think about it as much until I'm actually there at the venue and that's when the nerves kind of start developing. And I don't think there's a way to escape them. Like you can, you can try meditating, you can try breathing exercises, you can try not thinking about it, you can try telling yourself that it's no big deal, there's no pressure, I'm just doing this for fun, and it's not going to work because it's still in the bottom of your belly, you feel that anxiety, you feel that there's something big that's going to happen, you know, very soon today, and I'm going to have to like be in an enclosed space and go with a person, like person to person, mano a mano. And it's it's a big deal, you know. You're 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 fighting somebody. You're not obviously it's not an MMA match. It's way less violent. There's less potential for you to get hurt, but still, there is a potential there. You do want to win. There is something on the line, and there's not really a way to extinguish that feeling. But I think in order to kind of quell all the emotion you have inside of you. The best thing to do, the the best thing that I do, somebody asked on that post, how do you get rid of the adrenaline dump? I would say pick a training partner, pick somebody that you're close to, and an hour or so before the match that you're scheduled to go on to, you should just drill the positions you know best and make sure that you're really like using all your strength when you drill and do it for maybe five or ten minutes, not for a really long time. I found that this like releases all that built up tension. And then I feel warm, I feel like I feel like I just had a roll, even though I didn't, even though there was no potential for me to get hurt in that situation, I just warmed up my muscles, I got, I got myself ready for the fight, uh, I feel warm and ready to go, and I think that's like the best advice I can really give to people that are about to compete, 
like all the other anxieties they're just gonna stay with you and I think if you don't have them that just means that the competition doesn't really mean much to you so I think it's good that you have that I think that's like a big part of the motivation aspect that you do want to win you do want to see how you match up against someone you know mm-hmm. because you mentioned you know there's a difference between sometimes the, the more local smaller tournaments do you notice that you feel differently before a match at a local tournament like when you competed against Caitlin Huggins at the Charlotte Open versus competing with someone like Mackenzie Dern who is a big name who's won a ton so I don't I don't want to take away from anyone but I treat every opponent in the same way mm-hmm. I get just as nervous. I got just as nervous uh, waiting for the match against Caitlin as I did going against Mackenzie Dern. Um, I think the big lesson here is you should never underestimate your opponent. Mm-hmm. Even if they're a small town black belt, you should never think that they're going to be any much worse than you because they're not. They're a black belt for a reason. They didn't just get that in the mail or anything. You know, they worked hard for that and they came to test their skill against you, so you need to treat them like an equal opponent. And I think uh, there's a value in that, that you, you should never underestimate your opponent because if you do, and I've done that before at lower belts, uh, it never turns out well. In the middle of the match, you're kind of hit with this wave of, oh my God, what did I get myself into? I thought this was going to be so easy, one more and done, and now the match is halfway in and I haven't even scored a point. So always, I think, prep yourself for every opponent like you would for if it was the finals of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you and I were talking uh, off microphone about Caitlin and how tough she is. And I'm wondering if you could share some of your impressions of that match. Yeah, the first one, the one at Charlotte Open. Sure. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I've only I'd only heard of Caitlin before through Sam Fallhaber. Uh, she told me about this girl, the super tough girl that I was gonna end up fighting at Charlotte Open, and I think I looked up one match of hers, and I don't really remember how it went. But I was like, okay, this girl's competed before; she has experience, so you know. Don't underestimate her. And I think I'm not exactly sure how our match went. I know that I pulled guard. I think I was looking for an armbar or something. And Caitlin held on for dear life. I could not get that arm out. I had to keep switching and transitioning positions. And I do think I eventually got on top and was able to find a choke. But I was really impressed by how uh, how strong she was. And um, Caitlin even like messaged me after she didn't end up showing up for the podium and I, I didn't take it personally or anything I know people have things to do they can't stay there sometimes they make you wait hours after the podium and mm-hmm. but she messaged me after and she was like you know I'm really sorry that was that was a disrespect on my part even though I didn't take it as disrespect I thought it was like amazing of her to reach out to me and let me know that we had like a great match and that she was like sorry for not coming I just thought that was like a class F that she was a real awesome person after that that she even thought to write that whole message one of the great things about jiu-jitsu is you can compete hard against somebody and have a really tough match and then afterward it's like oh there's this shared bond this respect yeah. that you earn and so that's that's very very cool and it's one of the things that it's nice to hear happens in, in your experience in jiu-jitsu as well um Talking about, I mentioned Mackenzie Dern earlier. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering who you like. What are some of the toughest matches that you can remember having? Uh, sure, I think um, Mackenzie is obviously a very tough match. I fought her, I think, 
four times now. I've won three out of the four times, and the the first match I had against her was the one that I lost, and I lost by referee decision. But every match I've uh, had with her has been super tough, and that's because she's obviously like you don't even she doesn't need an introduction. She's a very tough opponent, and she's very scrambly and hard to pin down, and uh, very very hard to pass. Like I don't I don't think I've ever passed her guard. Uh, I'm hoping to try. <laughs> 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 Mackenzie, I hope you're not listening to this. But um, I think besides Mackenzie, Moniki Elias, uh, you, I think I see that expression on your face. You clearly remember her. She's retired now from competition, not from uh, training jiu-jitsu. But she and I went neck and neck for, I think, two years in a row. We were almost in every absolute final from pans to worlds to smaller tournaments. And she was always a super tough match. Her guard uh, was almost just like mine. It was very set on like deadly grips that you could not break no matter what you had to cut your hand off to get that grip off and long legs that could entwine you in any de la Hiva type transition that you could ever think of and those matches were really tough those matches were really intense they were always around one or two advantages one or two points off never really a clear-cut 10 to 0 victory or like a submission or anything like that so i really miss competing against her she was a really tough opponent and um besides that like i don't want to give anyone sure. non-credit i think everyone's a really tough opponent i think um obviously i fought gabby garcia <laughs> when i was a brownville and uh she was a really tough match i kind of had a whole game plan for her when I first went in, and um, Gabby and I are friends, and we were friends at the time, and it was kind of weird for us to fight each other, but I really wanted to see how it would do against her because she was such an inspirational, huge name at the time, and she still is now, but um, I remember I had a whole game plan that I was going to do this, I was going to pull her into my X-Guard and see maybe if I could find a sweep there, and all of that went out the window as soon as we slapped hands, I saw the enormity of her hand against mine and I was like, oh man, this is really happening. I'm really fighting Gabby Garcia. And then it just kind of became, okay, Dom, just survive this. Try not to get your guard pass. And eventually I did get my guard pass, but thankfully a sweep and a guard pass were the only points that were scored on me that day. So I was pretty proud of myself for not getting submitted, especially at Brownville. And I think a lot of the people at Abu Dhabi, where it happened, were impressed by my performance because I had a lot of picture-taking happening after. Yeah, as a fan of jiu-jitsu, obviously Gabby has other priorities now, doing MMA and such, but, like, I'm, I would, you know, I would love to see a match between the two of y'all today and see how, how that goes. Just, as a fan of jiu-jitsu, I would love that. But, you know, you mentioned she's a friend. Is it tougher for you to compete against someone you consider a friend, or, or um, is it just another match? I, I definitely think there's something a little awkward about it. You know, you don't... It's it's not uh, um, it's not like your enemies. It's not like your enemies with anyone you fight necessarily. Um, but there is some level of hey, we hang out, we talk, we're like we share stories, we share flaws. You know, like why would we go neck and neck against each other in this semi not not violent but like aggressive like environment? And um, I don't. I don't think I'd want to fight her. I don't think she'd want to fight me. And I don't think there's even a situation where that would happen because she's she's got other priorities, you know. She's she's moved out from jujitsu. Obviously, I think she still does, and she still focuses on it. But you know, she's got her MMA career on the line, and that's obviously bigger for her. And she's doing great big things. So I don't think she'd go back down <laughs> to the level of not getting paid to compete again. <laughs> 
Yeah, most definitely. On the topic of pay, you know, uh, you and I were talking a little bit off mic about uh, equal pay for BJJ, yeah. which is something that is a, a, a cause that's near to your heart and the hashtag that you started. And, uh, you know, in jiu-jitsu, like in life, unfortunately, there are pay discrepancies. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, like, what, what, what first inspired you to speak out on that? And, and maybe you can talk about how that came to be. So, um, I've, I've written about this before too, but, uh, to retell the story, I started Equal Pay kind of off of a wave of, uh, not like anger, but just a wave of frustration that happened to me after the first New York Pro, where they first introduced paying fighters in the IBJJF. And I was at the tournament and I was looking over the the pay scales and I looked and it said four thousand dollars for first place as a black belt and I was like, Golly gee, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Four thousand dollars, are you kidding me? That's awesome. That's more than most jujitsu fighters get paid in a month. You know, that's a great reward. And then I saw that in a little separate square it said women's absolute gets paid one thousand five hundred and I was like, that can't be right. How can the division be getting 4000 and the absolute be getting 1500 that's so much less then i realized of course that there were no pay there were no prizes for the women's divisions at all it was just for the absolute and the men were getting $4000 for first place in their division and $1000 for second place in their division and there was no absolute and i believe they had about 5 divisions maybe four different weight categories and i calculated in my head i don't remember the exact numbers today but it was something like a twenty-five thousand dollar total sum of prizes awarded to the men versus a two thousand something seven hundred dollar prize that was cumulative to the women of like all the different belts all the different absolutes and i was like hmm it's a little interesting. Why is the gap so huge? Why is it almost a 10-time difference? I don't really understand. And I tried appealing to the IBJJF. I tried getting them to instill a limit. So, say, a lot of people are making the argument that there's not going to be enough women to fill those categories to justify the $4,000 prize. And the first thing I said was, oh, the first pro, one of the divisions for men had two people in it. Mm-hmm. So... Both of them went home with money. Two people in the division. That's still less than the female absolute. Uh, so that didn't make any sense to me. And then after that, they instilled a limit. So there had to be four men to sign up in order to justify the prize. Still no prizes for the women. And I don't understand why they can't do the same thing for the women. I just can't find an argument for it. And many people will say, oh, the women don't bring in enough viewers. And that is... Like, how are you going to justify that? I I can see you justifying it in basketball games and all other games where you can actually tally up the attendance. Here, you don't know who's watching whom. And for that matter, a lot of people aren't there just to watch the black belt men. They're not. They're there to support their teammates. They're there to support their coaches. They're there to support their wives, their husbands, their kids. You know, they're not there exclusively for the black belt men. So there's no way to really factually gather up all that information and put it in a statistical format where you can tell me that women aren't bringing in viewership. I think that if we can look at maybe pay-per-view stats of like women's only matches where there's an event where it's only women happening, then maybe you can give me that information and then maybe we'll argue about that then. 
but for now I still think that there's no reason why those pros shouldn't be equal in pay mm -hmm. and I've had so many arguments with people over this online I've read so many reddit forums just trashing the whole cause and encouraging this one thing that I really love of women fighting men which is awesome you know because we're definitely biologically the yeah, same right. <laughs> we definitely have the same muscle mass we definitely have the same amount of testosterone in our bodies that totally makes a lot of sense guys thank you and if you didn't understand that it was sarcasm um we'll put the sarcasm tag in the yeah, podcast please put the sarcasm tag because somebody's gonna say yes she's a genius she's proposing what i was proposing <laughs> but no like we nearly need to consider that uh Women's Jiu-Jitsu is growing. If we're not seeing equal pay now, maybe it's been justified, but it's soon not going to be because divisions are growing. Uh, popularity is growing. I'm seeing a lot more women showing up for seminars. I'm seeing a lot more women show up in classes. There's a lot more interest. It's becoming a more female-friendly space. So I think we're going to see progress hopefully soon. And I will commend the IBJJF on doing one thing, and that's making prizes equal for the top-ranking female black belts and male black belts and i i really appreciate that i think that was something given because of the cause to appease some of the people that were still angry about the pro payments mm -hmm. but i will say that there are still people that even after that were criticizing the ibjjf's decision to do that saying that women don't work hard enough and you know i understand if you're giving me the argument of statistics if you still in your head believe that women are capable of achieving the same things in the sport as men, that they are here for a reason, they're not just here to get boyfriends or whatever. Mm. But the people that are saying that we don't work hard enough, that we don't sweat that's enough, silly. that we aren't putting in enough effort is that's just ludicrous. You can't you can't measure that at all. You can't measure heart. You can't measure how much effort I put into it, especially if I'm training all the classes that you're training and I'm doing all the weightlifting that you're doing and I'm taking all the supplements that you're taking and I'm paying the same amount for my flights and I'm paying the same amount for my gym membership. You can't make these sort of arguments based on nothing, based on air. Mm -hmm. I think people take such a short-sighted approach too is that like, you know, particularly when you're talking about prize money, it's like, well, there aren't enough people to justify it. Well, if you build it, they will come, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, and one of the things that's been gratifying to see over the last few years is the growth of the sport, you know, simply because, and you, because, uh, you know, fewer women are in the sport now, but I think the growth rate among women is actually much higher, simply because I think jujitsu is for everybody and we need to make sure it's accessible for everybody. So let's talk about training a little bit. Um, one thing that we, we got some listener questions for you. And a bunch of people were, were interested in, do you train full-time now? Is this your full-time job? <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> I'm still in school. I'm currently a junior in my second semester at Columbia University. I have one more year left. Hopefully just one more year. Hopefully I don't have to make up any credits or anything for my majors. But um, this isn't by uh, um, no means my full-time thing. I am enjoying putting in more work into it I've been traveling more I've been doing more seminars but that's because I'm slowly trying to turn this into a career not necessarily a full-time career that I'm going to pursue after college but something on the side that I will never stop doing so yeah so since it's not your full-time job, and I think a lot of our listeners fall into that category, people that really love jujitsu, want to maximize their, their time in it, what they get out of it, 
how do you how do you balance training with with your life? You know, as someone that's in school, as someone that has other responsibilities, how do you, how do you make sure you get that training in? So a lot of it is not training as much as I want to, and I know that there are people that will sacrifice school uh, over training. That they will skip class to go train. They will call off early from work to go train. And I am kind of the opposite right now. I'm more focused on making sure that everything is all set so that I can actually graduate and get good grades. And I try more to uh, sacrifice training sessions for school. But I really, when I'm when I am in season and I'm not off for any other reason, whether injury or anything like that, I do train like maybe once, twice a day, and try to do conditioning on the side. But um, I will say that uh, I don't. I don't train crazy. I don't train like four hours a day. I don't train uh, three classes a day. That's not who I am. And that's honestly not who I ever was. I can't remember a point in my life where I was doing three, four classes a day. I think honestly that's a little crazy. I think for people that um, feel like they need that, then good for them. Like it's a, they're stronger than I am in that respect. I, I wouldn't have the stamina to do three classes a day. But I don't think that I've been doing anything wrong with my training session so far. It seems to have been working, seeing as I've won Worlds as a black wolf four times right now. So, um, yeah, that's my training regimen for, for now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, many people that uh, do skip work for training are listening to this podcast, and one of them is hosting it. So, <laughs> I, so I hope no one is listening from Sierra Club. Uh, if you are, forget this. <laughs> but, uh, it's not real. It's a dream. Yeah, right. No, you, yeah, it, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Uh Another question we got from a listener. So you mentioned your, your first match with McKenzie, or one of your first matches, and I may get the details of this wrong, but you lost by ref's decision. I think that was at the Euros. This was, And so now, obviously, as you just mentioned, you the last two years, you've beaten everybody at Worlds in your weight class. You've beaten everybody at Worlds in absolute. And, and you've won against McKenzie, you know, again, a, a tremendous jiu-jitsu athlete. I'm wondering, can you identify what, what has changed for you? Was there a moment where you said, hey, I, have, I feel a switch flip, and now I'm at this level? Or was it just a gradual progression? Did you do anything different? What, what did you notice that, that has changed? Sure. Um, so I think with Mackenzie, I can pinpoint a very exact uh, thing. When I was younger, uh, I, was, I was around 12, I believe, I had decided to do my first world as a juvenile. So I signed up. I got myself a blue belt, even though I was some, somewhere around orange belt, yellow belt level. <laughs> I signed up, and in my division were, I think she was 15 or 14 at the time, probably 15, 15-year-old Mackenzie Dern and 16-year-old Kobe Devine. And I had my first match against Kobe. I won that. I felt pretty good about myself. I had my second match, the finals, against Mackenzie. I had no idea who she was. I had no idea who Megaton was. I didn't really care. I was just ready to taste that gold. And I got Kimura'd in something like two minutes. She just ran right through me, past my guard. I didn't even know what was happening. And tapped me, and I was really sad. <laughs> Walked with my nose to the floor to my dad. And was like, who is this girl? You know, she was so good. I, I'm so good in my gym. I do really well against the boys in my gym. I get private lessons from people. You know, I should be should be doing better than this. I should be doing better than getting run through in the finals. And then we did some research. Found out Megaton Diaz is an amazing <laughs> world-class black belt. That's his daughter, Mackenzie. She's been training she's been, since she's been like six years old. Been introduced to the mats since uh, birth, basically. And after that, it kind of became this 
pseudo person to look up to slash want to win against for the rest of my jiu-jitsu career. I fought her once more at Blue Belt Adult at Worlds. I think um, this was 2009, and I, I'm, or maybe 2008. I'm shouting the details, but she comored me again. <laughs> she comored me again. Maybe this time it was three minutes instead of two. And I was like, what is with this girl? How is she getting me? What's going on? Why is she so much faster than me? Why is she so much more confident than me? Why does she smile after she beats me and shakes my hand like nothing happened? What is going on? So after that, I just went right headfirst into training. I watched some videos of her. I watched videos of a whole bunch of other girls. I got really serious about things. I really tried to develop my game, really tried to avoid doing things that weren't so suited for my body type, stop trying to be the little girl, because I was still lightweight at the time, and I was like, that's not going to last long. <laughs> uh, every foot that I went up, I was like, I'm not going to stay in this division. So I gained a little bit of weight, and then I was supposed to face her again at Purple Belt, and I didn't. She lost the match to Liana Diderich, and then I met Liana in the semifinals, and I beat Liana then eventually went down to the finals, beat Rachel DeMera, and got my first gold in the absolute mm. as a purple belt at Worlds, and I was 15 at the time. So, fast forward, Mackenzie gets her black belt before I do, so I'm checking her fights, checking on her matches, she's doing really well as a rookie black belt, obviously. <laughs> There's no surprise there. And then I get my black belt, and then I'm like, okay, all right. Here it is. There's no more moving up. Now we're all on the same level. Now we're all going to meet. I just know it's going to happen. And my first tournament as a black belt, you were right, was European. And I had my first match in the absolute against, I believe it was Amanda... Um, Amanda Lowen from Seattle. Amanda Lowen! I'm so sorry, Amanda. You were an awesome fight and always a pleasure to see you in all tournaments. <laughs> And then after Amanda, I had a match against Yanni Larson, which uh, I hope a lot of you know who she is. She is a, a Swedish black belt who has recently retired to become a doctor, of course. And she was really, really big a couple of years ago. She won Worlds as a black belt. I believe she won Worlds at maybe two or three times as a brown belt. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of shy on the details, but she was really, really good. And I always wanted to fight her, and I, and I had her... That's my second match in the absolute, and I was stoked. And also, I was terrified. Mm. Um, I had my match against Yanni. I ended up winning by an advantage. I was so giddy inside, I couldn't even tell you. I had fought her once before, and I wasn't even able to score a point against her. And now, at my first black belt level tournament, Europeans, which is pretty big, mm -hmm. I managed to be Yanni, and that was really big in my book, and I was already feeling really confident. And then... I had a match against Mackenzie. I think it was the semifinals. So I go into this match, and I feel good. I feel good after Yanni, but I know the main event's not over. So we slap hands, I pull guard, I pull her into my close guard. I'm working on the close guard. I'm really trying to find submissions, but she's so good at swimming her arms out. I can't really lock anything in. She's so small, she can tuck everything in nice and tight. I can't really find an elbow, a groove, a place to put my legs so I can lock anything up. So I open up. And then I'm not exactly sure how the match went on from there. I believe it was advantage to an advantage. I believe she almost 
got a pass on me that he inverted to and then got back into guard, and then I almost swept her. So that's how we built up our advantages. And then the match ended, and I thought that because of that almost uh, pass where, she got, where I saw her get the advantage that I had already lost. Mm. So the first thing I did was lay back on my back, hands slapped over my face in an ugh motion, and then I rocked myself up, looking super disappointed, and I looked up at the crowd, and a whole bunch of people that were there in my corner were yelling, Get up! <laughs> Celebrate! It's tied! Celebrate! I was like, oh shit. <laughs> I messed up. <laughs> so, obviously, Mackenzie dancing around and lifting her finger up in the air a couple of times made it really seem like she was the the more confident fighter that definitely, no argument, won the match. And a lot of people came up to me after and were like, you know what, you should have celebrated. Maybe you would have had more of a chance. And kudos to her. She did an amazing job in that match. I'm not taking that victory away from her. I'm just highlighting a, a little BJJ advice for people out there that are <laughs> getting refs decisions. But then after that match, I realized that our skills weren't the same as they were five years ago. She wasn't running through me. I realized that a ref's decision with a world-class competitor like Mackenzie was awesome as a rookie black belt. And then after that, I kind of just kept building my confidence. I, I kept telling myself that there was no reason I couldn't win against these women. There was no reason I couldn't win against women that have been competing in black belt for years and years, and that it was no different, that my jiu-jitsu was on par with theirs and it would be close probably but I could still do it I could still salvage the win you know and then I fought Mackenzie for the next time at, uh, at Worlds I believe yeah it was at Worlds I didn't do absolute at Pans I did absolute at Worlds and then I think she was either my uh, semi-final or my quarter-final and I think I beat her 2-0 to zero or something like that and after that you know I just I felt like it wasn't a big deal anymore. It was kind of like going into training with somebody that I had trained with a lot before, and they always used to beat up on me, but over time, my progress eventually caught up with them, and now we were sort of on the same slate, and I could really be a high-level competitor to rival her skills. Mm -hmm. So I think what really helped in this situation for me, obviously, technique improvement is important it's crucial for all of us but more than that it was building up the confidence in myself to tell myself that I was good enough to rival these girls that there was no reason a rookie black belt couldn't you know do like rough it up with the best of them at that level and I think uh, for anybody listening out there the mental game the the self-doubt that you have that's your worst enemy in a competition the the primary thing you have to do is just eradicate that self-doubt. Tell yourself that no matter how many titles that person has that's in front of you, no matter how much buzz they have going around them, there's no reason you can't beat them. You have to believe in your own skill and you have to believe that no matter how that match goes, even if that person passes you a million times, that you're going to get that submission at the end. That there's a reason you're there fighting that person, that you can do it, that you can that you were trained for this reason. You can find that submission, you can find that pass, you can find that sweep in the last two seconds and pull through and win that match. 
I think that mentality is really what allowed me to go against world-class competitors like Mackenzie, like Pia, like Yanni, like all these amazing girls, and still be able to come out with a win. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Bia Mosquito, who was the absolute, who also won absolute at Worlds, one of the best competitors ever. For a lot of us that are fans of sport jujitsu, you know, everybody has their own opinion about what the most prestigious tournament. For me, yeah. it's the ab- the black belt absolute at the Mundials. Yeah. And so I'm wondering when whether you do set competition goals for yourself, and what and and if you do. Like, now that you've won that honor a couple of times, is, is this the kind of thing where you're like, I want to win this X number of times, I want to win this more than anybody else? Is that is that the type of goal setting you do or, or, or not? <laughs> so, I think I set above and beyond the goals that I had set for myself in jiu-jitsu. My goals in jiu-jitsu were do well. And do well meant, oh, maybe win gold a couple of times, you know, a year. Win gold in worlds, maybe once. And so far, I've won gold 10 years in a row. I won gold at blue belt when I was 14, at purple belt when I was 15, brown belt twice at 17 and 18, and black belt four times at 19 and 20. And I crushed all of my goals that first year at black belt, winning double gold as a rookie, as a European, as the youngest female ever, I think that was like getting to have my cake and eat it too. That was that was the, the cream of the crop right there. That was the, the most amazing accomplishment I could have set for myself. Doing it was incredible. And right now, I don't really have any other outstanding goals. I don't really have a win it 10 times and then you're good, then you can retire. I kind of just go by feel. I. I will decide when it's the right time for me to retire and I will decide when it's the right time for me to stop competing in these events. For now, it's just about improving my skill, continuing to see how I do against these amazing girls, and I just do it for the love of jiu-jitsu, you know, there's no, there's no other goal. I'm just here to do it, you know, I'm just here because I love it. That's the best reason to be here. And one of the interesting things about the jiu-jitsu community, so you've just list, you have a laundry list of accomplishments at a, <laughs> at, a, at a very young age, and so and this has generated you know people in the jiu-jitsu community know who you are generally speaking, and so I'm wondering like as a young person like it's not like you're famous famous right you're jiu-jitsu famous yeah <laughs> so you can walk yeah. through you can walk through an airport without people saying like I saw you like we saw a Netflix actor on the street today and you were mm-hmm. like I know that guy it's I not, know it's, that guy yeah and so how do you how do you find that in terms of what is your experience being relatively prominent in a niche community like <laughs> jiu-jitsu? It's so weird. It's so weird. I feel so weird when people come up and ask me for pictures. And obviously in jiu-jitsu tournaments, not at the airport, nobody knows or cares why I'm at an airport unless I'm doing something shady. Uh, but it's just weird and it's I don't think it's because, oh, it's jiu-jitsu or whatever. I think it's weird because I think of myself as this weird nerdy person who does this weird obscure sport that no one really knows about and I'm 21 years old and I do not have my life figured out at all I'm just trying to get into the process of adulting and here are people who are older than me wiser than me know how to pay their own taxes asking to take a picture with me and it's it's crazy it's bizarre to me and that and getting pictures in magazines and having podcasts invite you over to talk and 
you know, people making highlights of you. Some guy I saw on a Reddit post deconstructed my entire Omoplata game in a 20-page analysis. What? Who does... Who gets that done? What kind of a privilege is that as a 21-year-old to have somebody analyze your entire game in a whole spread? I think it's... It's bizarre. I'm very flattered. I honestly probably don't thank the universe enough for giving me such an awesome life, such an awesome existence where people actually look up to me and see me as a role model when I eat chocolate way too much <laughs> and should not be doing that because it's bad for my health. Um, but I just, I think it's so weird. And I'm, I'm so grateful to everyone who considers themselves a fan of me who actually want to bring me out to do seminars, who want to take privates with me, who want to learn from me, who ask for my advice, because I never pictured myself as that kind of person, and I'm very grateful that I am now, that you guys have helped me grow into someone like this. Well, speaking of uh, being weird and nerdy, we've now that we've gotten the jujitsu stuff out of the way, it's time for the really important part of the podcast. Super important part. Let's really hear it. important part, which is what's your favorite Studio Ghibli film? Okay, I talked about this with Jeff earlier. My favorite Studio Ghibli film is Spirited Away. There's no better movie on this universe at all. It's got dragons. It's got outlandish creatures it's got a girl having her parents turn into pigs what do you even do when that happens what do you do and she couldn't even go home at that point because there was now a random river separating her and this weird ass place and her home it's such a great movie i recommend it to anyone that hasn't seen it there's a lot of adult themes in there as well as obviously the childhood themes of random comedy and weird looking creatures and you know just awesome scenes awesome animated scenes that are really just such a pleasure to look at and uh, just go watch this movie if you haven't mm -hmm. two thumbs up continuing in the nerd vein three web comics that you think are either your favorite three web comics or three web comics people listening should check out okay uh, my favorites you know i haven't looked at um, these web comics for a while i think questionable content is a big one i think it's i think it's probably likely the most well-known off of this list so most people that do read about comics should know this um the second one that i love that i don't know if a lot of people are gonna like is called the gilded age it's this really weird like almost lord of the rings type webcomic with uh futuristic components i want to say not futuristic but there's there's robots and there's technology and there's there's really interesting stuff going on uh, let me think of a third well, if it helps spur your uh, your memory, I can I can list three as well. Like questionable content would be on my list as well. I also enjoy a webcomic called Dumbing of Age. It's by this guy David Willis. I don't know if oh you've read that god, one. Oh my god, I love David Willis. Yeah, have walkie? you looked? Yeah. Walkie. Have you looked at all of his work? Uh, one... Almost all, except for the stuff on Slipshine. Um. But uh, it I, Roomies. It's Walkie. Roomies, roomies was amazing. It's Walkie was amazing. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh, short packed. Right, short pack, short pack yeah, yeah. was so good. Oh my god, I can't. I had totally repressed this part. 
Well, see, this is why you should come on podcast because I remember well beloved webcomics. Off of this, you should look up college roommates from hell. Oh, I've I've totally read college roommates from hell with with Mike with the tentacle arm and the yeah yeah Maritza uh, Campos and Margaret and and Dave and the weird bear or the the blue with the weird with the blue hair and and and, and their killer mom. Oh my god, that honestly, it was was one of the most surreal webcomics I've ever read. Surreal, but. It was also very mature. They approached a lot of very serious themes of religion. One of them, the fear of death. And then um, all these weird themes like Mike being a zombie and coming back to life. And and it sounds like if you haven't read it, it sounds comical. It sounds not serious at all. But when you do read it, there's a lot of deep stuff there. There's a lot of um, coping with these big themes. And how do you do it? How do people deal with heartbreak how do people deal with loss how do people deal with this giant universe ahead of them that they don't know how to handle how do they deal with living in it and then living outside of it you know things like that and i really recommend it to everyone it's it's it definitely gave me a lot of ideas about the world excellent i want to throw one other webcomic recommendation while we're on this because you made me think of gunner Krig court which is by this guy tom sidell no, i'll send I don't know this one. i'll send you a link it's pretty cool it's sort of like um it's sort of it's sort of magic sword and sorcery meets sort of spiritual medium stuff if yeah. fall and and so it takes place in a court a castle there's robots it's uh yeah yeah it's pretty dope I have I have one more one more recommendation. Um, this is more I think this is kind of almost newspaper style comics, but not really. If you've heard of Kevin and Kevin and Kel, yeah. Kevin and Kel, yeah, from Nickelodeon. No, 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 no. Oh, no. Keenan and, and Kel. Oh, this is Kevin and Kel. Okay, so it's <laughs> so there's a rabbit and a and a and a wolf, and they're married and they have a family, and uh, they they live together, and it's basically. Their society, they, the webcomic follows their family, the different uh, family dichotomies happening, the different societal ideologies intermixing. You, th- it's it sounds funny again, mm-hmm. like the college roomies thing. You think, okay, it's comics about animals. It's super childish, but they cover big themes like Kevin marrying Kel, who's a wolf. Mm-hmm. She is the head of the family. She's the head of the household. She's the predator. She's the CEO. Uh, she's soon to be the CEO of her of her company, and she's dating a prey. Mm. So there's a little bit of a racial thing happening where people are angry at Kel for dating a prey. They're angry at Kevin for betraying his species by dating a predator. Um, there's a whole Kevin. What kind of a man are you that your wife is like the breadwinner of the family? That she is the the, the predator. She's the one with the fangs almost. Mm. There's a lot of cool little sociological details in the comic and like i said before i haven't read a bunch of these as of late i probably stopped reading web comics around a year or two ago when i really started focusing on other aspects of my life i'm not saying that they're it's not worthwhile like i'll probably go back to reading these as soon as i'm done with this podcast because just jeff just re-sparked this whole passion (laughs) in me but i really recommend giving these a shot because you're, you're surprised. You're surprised by what you might find, what you might find useful in them, you know? So to finish up, uh, is there anything that I haven't asked about that you really wish I would have asked about or anything you think particularly important for people to know? Oh, this is such a trick question. Let me think. Well, I think one thing that a lot of people don't know about me that a lot of people that do 
know me find really annoying is I have a really awkward and weird obsession with paranormal stuff and true crime, things like that. Uh, I obsessively read Reddit, Let's Not Meet, Reddit, No Sleep. I used to be into creepypastas until I found Reddit and realized there was a whole larger forum for all these things. Um, I also really like scary movies for whatever reason. I don't really understand because then I can't sleep after. I really enjoy like paranormal thrillers that make you think, that make you consider what other parallel universes could exist, what other forms of life we don't know exist out here in the world. Um, and yeah, I think that might be one of the weirder things that I try to hold back from people before I truly get to know them so they don't think I'm super weird and try to distance themselves from me as soon as they find out. And yeah, I think that's it. Weirdness is a good thing, not a bad thing from my perspective. And maybe after the seminar tomorrow, since Caitlin Huggins is going, maybe I'll ask you to your top three scary movies, given that Caitlin used to be a staff writer for, yes. for the Horror News website. Well, Dominica, it's a real pleasure meeting you. I'm super excited to, to stay here, that you're staying here in training. I want to thank you so much for coming down and thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated this. I want to talk to you guys about Cageside Fight Company for a second. I've been buying from Cageside for more than six years, and about 99% of the gear that I use is from Cageside. That's not because other companies don't make good stuff. They do. It's just that Cageside offers the highest quality products at the best value and, no joke, the best customer service I've ever experienced in my life. So whether you're looking for shin pads, whether you're looking for Thai gear, whether you're looking for Brazilian jiu-jitsu geese or Valetudo shorts, whether you're looking for the coolest t-shirts around, check out Cageside.com or come into their fight shop at one. 24 Lotter Road, right in Durham, North Carolina. You won't be sorry. Another thing I want to mention about Cageside is they do more to support local fighters and local Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitors than just about anybody else, and so we've got to support the people that support us. Check out Cageside Fight Company, 124 Lotter Road in Durham, North Carolina, or online at cageside.com. So that's our show for the week. My thanks again to everybody who showed up to support the seminar. My thanks to Dominica for the interview. It was a great weekend of jiu-jitsu. We want to continue to bring you all the best in the world. And so please turn out to support these seminars. It's a way to help jiu-jitsu athletes make a living. It's a way to make sure that the best people continue to come down to North Carolina and help us grow our scene here. Before we get on out of here, I want to give you a quick preview of our upcoming couple of shows. I mentioned that we are going to be doing a data analysis of all 4,000 plus U.S. grappling submission only matches, so there will be a pretty nerdy segment on upcoming podcasts, but one interview I've been trying to track down for quite a while is Sebastian Brosh and Miha Perovic of Yoga for BJJ. A lot of y'all know that I am an avid yoga practitioner and big believer in yoga for jiu-jitsu, so I wanted to talk to Sebastian, who is a top-level competitor, and Miha about their experience with yoga, about their site, Yoga for BJJ. JJ and about what they believe yoga be- brings in terms of benefits to jiu-jitsu practitioners. We'll be adding that an interview with Heather Casey, who is a local yogi and jiu-jitsuka who trains at Trapp- Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. Lourdes Cantu did an interview with Heather about her classes, her approach to yoga, and why she thinks it benefits local jiu-jitsu folks as well. We might throw one other interview there for Spice, but there will be a yoga-themed show in the future. This is Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll be back at you next week. Thank you.